Well, welcome. We'll uh, get started here this morning. I will open us in prayer. Always good to pray before we attempt something like this. And then we'll uh, be off in Deuteronomy 6 this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you first for your word that you have given to us, that we might know you. What a privilege it is and how precious this word is to us. We come here this morning not seeking merely knowledge, but seeking your very face. And we pray that you would grant that to us. We also thank you then for the opportunity and the believers among whom we can gather and engage in this great task with. We pray that you would bless our efforts this morning, that you would make our minds sharp and clear, that we would be able to apprehend what you have for us in this text. There is no word that is in here that is not preserved and breathed out by you. And so we pray your spirit would enable us to see it and appreciate it and be transformed by it this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy 6 this morning. There were handouts at every door, I believe. Give me a minute to find my place. There are a couple of things I want to do this morning before we actually dive too deeply into the content of Deuteronomy 6, and that is connect it to the larger section of Deuteronomy. So what I've done this morning on those notes is I've given you verses uh, 32 and 33, maybe verse 1 of chapter 5, chapter 1, verse 5 on the handout there. Any feedback? Yes? Wonderful. I'm glad I did that. All right. So what is happening here in chapter 5 is Moses is reminding the people, especially in verses 22 to 33, he's reminding the people that because they feared hearing God speak from Mount Sinai, they came to Moses and they asked him to mediate the words of the Lord to them. They said, you speak to God, please don't make us hear, you hear from the Lord, we will do what you tell us after you hear from him. Moses agrees to that, and the Lord appoints Moses by command to be the covenant mediator and Israel's teacher. After this historical reminder, Moses moves on to his actual exhortation to Israel based on God's revelation. And God's revelation uh, was primarily verses 6 to 21, the Ten Commandments, which Moses has as rough quotations of the Lord from, Deut- uh, from Exodus 20. Uh, all of this is Moses' speech, but he lays out the groundwork. If we were to pay attention to the grammar or the, the blocking of the text, it would be called. Deuteronomy 5, verse 2 to Deuteronomy 5.31, that section is a historical digression that lays the groundwork for everything Moses is about to say in the rest of Deuteronomy. In chapter 5, verse 1, you will see three lines there. The statutes and the judgments are not meant as a reference to the Ten Commandments that are about to come in the rest of chapter 5. Rather, 
the Ten Commandments are a digression that serve two purposes. The first purpose is that in the text, they are the words of the Lord that cause the Israelites to fear. That's what they are in the text. But theologically, it also gives the baseline for the content out of which Moses is going to build this great architecture of teaching. But the Ten Commandments serve as its foundation. So hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules or judgments connects to chapter 5, verse 32, and chapter uh, 6, verse 1. So I want you to look at the, the layout I have there on your notes. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments is roughly parallel to you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left in all the way which Yahweh your God commanded you You shall walk all the way, again, statutes and judgments. But what happens in chapter 5, verse 1, these are the words that Moses is modestly speaking. These are the statutes and judgments which I am speaking in your ears today. That becomes in chapter 5, verse 32, when the thought is resumed, just as Yahweh your God commanded you. What Moses is speaking is not merely thoughts of his own. He didn't sit in a dark room and meditate for a while. He heard words from the Lord, and what he tells Israel are the things that God has commanded. Moses' speech is divinely authoritative and divinely commanded. That is explicitly said in chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you. That is significant. In chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you to do in the land. You will see how that too connects to chapter 5, verse 1. The word for learn and the word for teach are the same in Hebrew. They just take different forms of the same verb. And there is a not merely a play on words going on there, but Moses is trying to connect those two things together. All of this to say, when it says, this is the commandment in chapter 6, verse 1, This is not a reference back to the Ten Commandments. This is a reference to what is coming up in chapter 6 and following. What Moses is going to teach based on what God has said. So Moses, in this text, is establishing his divine authority and reminding Israel he's been divinely commanded to be Israel's teacher going forward. Moses is a teacher. He tells people how to live as God's people in God's place. Notice that at the end of chapter 6, verse 1 as well. To do in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So Israel is to do them. I draw all of this to our attention to make one, I think, very important point. God has deemed teaching necessary. Teaching is not optional in the life of the Christian. Receiving teaching. 
by implication or explicitly, if we look at chapter 5, verse 1, learning is not optional for the disciple of Christ. God has deemed teaching and learning necessary and foundational acts for the Christian. He has also required teaching to be very practical. Chapter 6, verse 4, through chapter 11, is Moses' great practical exhortation of what it means to have no other gods before Yahweh. Chapter 6 through chapter 11, devoted to the practical implications of one commandment. Not only that, application must come after history and textual lessons. That's the flow of Deuteronomy. Chapters 1 to 3 is a big history lesson. Chapter 4, what's the application? What's the point of that history lesson? Chapter 5, here are the words you heard from the Lord. Moses reminds them of their history. Then he gives this great, long, extended application of how Israel is supposed to live. So the Lord has deemed teaching and learning necessary, and he is required by Moses' example for teaching to be very practical, but application comes after we learn what the Lord has done and paying attention as well to textual lessons, which is what we have to do because we're one step removed. Now, we didn't hear the Lord speak at Mount Sinai. We have to read it in the text. And so we have to pay attention to what the text says before we can get to the particulars. So teaching is theological, not theoretical. Teaching is supposed to touch particulars, not merely generalities. And Moses sets that example for us. Thoughts or questions? Uh, We covered kind of our review and verse 1 of chapter 6. Any comments or questions to be had before we move on? There's a reason I didn't ask for agreement. All right. Verse 2 and 3. God commands this teaching. So I'll start reading in verse 1 and I'll read into verse 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it in order that you may fear the Lord your God. Teaching is supposed to lead to fearing the Lord. Notice that flow. The Lord your God commanded me to teach you, verse 2, that you might fear the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 10, gives us the same thought, but a little bit more concisely. We'll start in the middle of verse 9, because verse 10 picks up in the middle of a sentence here. Chapter 4, verse 9. Make them known to your children, which is the statutes and the rules or judgments. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, 
that I may let them hear my words, which is learn my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. Teaching is supposed to lead to the fear of the Lord. If we do not fear the Lord, one of the things we could perhaps do to correct that is increase our input of teaching. If we find the Lord has very little impact in producing fear by what we are receiving, increase our dose. Perhaps something else might help. But fear relates to something as well. In verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all these statutes. Fear relates to keeping in two possible ways. And this is where I'd like you to look at the very last page of your handout. Teaching relates to fear. Fear relates to keeping. And in the circle that has faithfulness, Put keeping or doing. That's what faithfulness is. Uh, Faithfulness is carrying out the activity of the Lord he's commanded. There are two texts that are worth looking at in Deuteronomy that illustrate that fear leads us into keeping the commandments. Deuteronomy 31 verse 12. So I'm saying there is a cycle and even a sort of order that happens. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner who is within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law. One leads to the other. Hear, fear, do the words of the law. On our way back to Deuteronomy 6, uh, swing by chapter 13, verse 11. It goes the other way in terms of uh, not doing. So here, fear uh, leads to our refrain from certain activities and all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness among you so hearing relates to fearing fearing then leads to keeping or doing but what is more remarkable I think that that is kind of the way we might naturally think of it or the way I do what is more remarkable in my mind is that fearing is keeping, which is to say there is no real difference between the two of them. If we do one, we will do the other. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, I would actually like to read you um, my translation of it here. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. The, The English drops an important word to make nice English. I mean, we're, we're making a translation, right? So um, trying to make something that's readable, I'm going to read it to you in the Hebrew, which I think is just as readable, but it, it includes the words that aren't there. And now, O Israel, this is uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, and now, O Israel, what is Yahweh your God asking from you but 
to fear Yahweh your God, colon, imagine a colon, which is to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So textually, this is the way it works. What the Lord asks for you is to fear him. What is fearing him? Keeping all his commandments and loving him and serving him. That's what it is. To fear is to walk in all his ways. It's the same thing. They're parallel. There's not a distinction. Keeping the commandments explains what it means to fear the Lord. They're the same thing. Now, if we say we fear God, but we do not keep his commandments, then we're not really fearing the Lord. We can't say of ourselves, well, I fear God, but I really have a hard time doing what he tells me to do. What Deuteronomy is saying, it doesn't work that way. Either you fear and you keep, or you're not really fearing the Lord, because they're the same thing. They're synonymous. One does lead to another from one perspective, but from another perspective, they're pretty much identical. They're the same thing. If we are not certain, if we fear the Lord properly, ask yourself, do I keep his commandments? And if we say, yeah, I keep what the Lord tells me to do, then we have the fear of the Lord the way we're supposed to have the fear of the Lord. But we'll all say, I don't really keep it the way I should, which means as well, we don't fear the Lord the way we should. So going back to our earlier point, what is one of the things we can do to help increase that? Increase our fear of the Lord and our ability to obey. Increase the input of teaching. That's what Moses is doing for the people of Israel. So, teaching, hearing, fearing, keeping. But more than that, the Lord commands teaching in order that the days might be long. Rest of verse 6. Sorry, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Again, that, that's uh, parallel there. Fearing and keeping. Which I, am, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. So I'll cut all the unnecessary grammar out and cut down to the chase. Verse 1, the Lord commanded me to teach you that you may do them in order that you might fear and in order that your days may be long. Those are the two main sections of verse 2. So teaching through this process should result in long life, long days in the land. Without teaching, their days will be cut short because they won't know how to live as God's people in God's land, and they won't fear the Lord, and that will result in their expulsion from the land he's giving them. Therefore, verse 3, hear therefore. O Israel, and be careful to do them. Now I'm going to jump back. We covered one issue, which is how does teaching relate to fear and how does fear relate to keeping? That's one issue in the text. There's one more that we didn't get back in verse 1. God commanded, uh, these are the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you might do them. So there's that Teaching leads to doing. Teach that you might do them. 
But teaching and doing them together form a group, and that teaching and doing together has the result in verse 2 of fearing and keeping. So this is what I'm saying. Fearing and doing relates to fear. Leads to fear, we might even say. It is maybe odd to say that doing results in fearing. The same way teaching results in fearing. But consider this. When we try to follow the commandment, we find out how far short we fall of the commandment. That is an experience in us that if we really understand the holiness of God and the nature of his commandments, and if we understand our tendency towards sin, will produce in us a response of fear toward the Lord. We should be fearful of the Lord if we continually fail to follow the commandments of the Lord. That's one way. The second way is that ingraining good habits can inductively teach wisdom. And remember, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Let's put it this way. If Jocko habitually keeps the Sabbath, Jocko will learn the benefits of keeping the Sabbath, and he will fear the results, or he will fear the lack of blessing by not keeping the Sabbath. Did you catch that? If Jocko habitually keeps the Sabbath, he'll learn the benefits of keeping the Sabbath, and he will fear losing the habit and losing all of the blessings that come in its wake. Doing the commandment, abiding by the commandment, leads to a fear of losing the benefits of obedience. That is a godly fear of the Lord. One of the things we are to fear is to fear losing God's blessing because we fail to obey. That's one of the things Moses is trying to teach Israel, especially in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, but throughout the whole book. So doing can result to a sort of fear. I'm going to give you one more example, a little bit more distant, but I hope maybe even a little bit more clarifying. It goes the other way. If Jocko habitually refrains from eating unclean foods... One of the silly, what seems to us to be one of the silly commands in the Old Testament. If Jocko habitually refrains from eating unclean foods, he will be kept from pagan influences and the natural fear of the divine that he feels because he's human will be directed toward Yahweh and not toward other gods. That's one of the big thrusts behind not eating unclean foods. Don't associate with pagans and their rights. Don't fear their gods. You fear Yahweh. One of the ways an ancient Israelite could grow in the fear of Yahweh was by not eating unclean foods. Refrain from those foods. Refrain from pagan influences. And the fear of God that you naturally have will not go twisted to all these foreign gods. They will go toward Yahweh. So in chapter 6, verse 1, let's reread it again. This is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land. Verse 2, in order that you might fear the Lord your God. Teaching and doing result in fearing the Lord your God and keeping 
the commandments. Another way to say it is once we gain a habit of good Sabbath keeping, we can maintain a good habit of Sabbath keeping. Once we do it, we can keep it. Um, it, it makes it easier. And so Moses here is spurring Israel to pay extra attention to what it is that she ought to do because blessing results in blessing. Obedience results in blessing. Blessing leads to more blessing. Once we get a taste of it, we want more of it, right? Um, how many of you, uh, as children or even as adults, once you get a taste of something good, you just kind of get a craving for more? I'm like... That's, I, I have an insatiable taste for this, right? That's one of the things Moses is trying to do. Uh, we, we, have, we, we are naturally insatiable creatures. Once we have a taste of something good, we want more. And what Moses is telling Israel is, get a good taste of the Lord because you'll want more. Taste it and see that God is good. So, one more thing before we leave uh, this last page of the handouts I gave you, I added to it from last week. I want to point one thing out here that may or may not be clarifying. I don't know. I have teaching and doing on both sides of faith. Teaching as a noun is the content of our faith. What do we believe in? Well, we're taught that. As a verb, teaching is the means to faith. So teaching um, changes its use depending on how it's used, right? Um, the, the way it's meant. But doing also leads to an increase of faith, and doing is faith. As we just saw a little bit earlier, doing is fearing. Uh, same thing. So in one sense, fear and faith, faithfulness and faith, and hope and faith are all the same thing, right? In fact, if someone were to ask you, what's the difference between faith and hope? it could be difficult to make a clear distinction between the two, and there's a good reason for that. Biblically speaking, it can be hard to make a clear distinction between fearing the Lord and faith, and that's right. But they are, in some senses, distinct as well. Faith is trust in God. Fear is reverent terror before God. Faithfulness is obedience to God. And hope is the confidence that God will do what he said he's going to do. Um, forward-looking, whereas faith is uh, even trust in the moment. So they're all distinct from one another in one sense, but they're all the same uh, to one another in another sense. Uh, so all of that to say um, faith, fear, faithfulness, hope, they can lead into each other in an ever-growing cycle, but in another sense, they can all be talked about in exactly the same sense. Uh, so when we come to a text like this, they're being used in more than one way. That's why I try and draw your attention to it. The text doesn't always speak of them the exact same way. And so I, I thought perhaps drawing that out might be helpful. Thoughts or questions over the first three verses here? Okay. Clear as mud. We will move on to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Uh, Shema, for those of you who don't know, is simply the word in Hebrew that the Shema begins with. It is a, a command, listen or hear. So Shema is just the word for hear, the, the command. 
So we, we will read the Shema, verses 4 to 9, and then we'll come back and have some comments over it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, which is again forward-looking to what's to come, everything in the book of Deuteronomy, the content of Deuteronomy, and all these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses calls Israel's attention, calls Israel to attention. This is the beginning of the statutes and judgments that are going to occupy the next 20 chapters of Deuteronomy. From here to Deuteronomy 26 is Moses' single great sermon, and he is telling Israel, pay attention to everything coming in the next 20 chapters, beginning with this right here. Verse 4 begins with a declaration of their object of worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is often the case that the most important places in Scripture are grammatically the most confusing. Some of you may have a different translation if you're using, I believe, the NASB. It says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. ESV and most other translations have the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Commentators are in a flurry over what all of this really means, but it can all be distilled down relatively simple. They all boil it down basically to the same thing for all the ink they spill. This is an identification of Yahweh as Israel's God, Yahweh and no other. The word for one is also often in the book of Deuteronomy translated as alone, so some translations may even have that. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, would also be a possible translation. The issue in this passage is not how many is God, but who is Israel's God. That is what is being addressed right here. So it's an identification of Yahweh, therefore his name is given two times. Now at best, monotheistic Unity is implied by what is said. It's not the primary, uh, the primary point. In fact, if you want to get the primary point, we have to read verse 4, verse four with verse 5 as one thought. And let's do that for a second. Verse 4 and verse 5 is one thought. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Who is it that shall be loved? Yahweh, Yahweh, our God. Um, that's who we love with all our heart. And so when it's read that way, he's named twice for emphasis, but remember that the Hebrew lacks English punctuation. Forget the period after the Lord uh, after the Lord is one. Think of it as a colon again. So this is a title. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Or, and you shall love the Lord your God. In fact, that is exactly how the, English, the, the Hebrew has it. 
Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's an and in there that is significant. So, what is happening here is Moses is narrowing down Israel's love interest to one deity. There is one God for you, O Israel, and that is the Lord. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this has monotheistic implications as Israel forsakes all other gods and pours herself into and out for entirely one God. There are no others. So there is not one God with many forms. There is not a God who is supreme among other gods, uh, merely, or supreme among many gods, There is one God who is over and above every other so-called God. We could fast forward to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, where Paul deals with this in a similar way. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. where he quotes something pretty similar to Deuteronomy here. <clears throat> if not in Deuteronomy 6, 5, then almost certainly a couple places in Deuteronomy 4 where the same thought is mentioned. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, but that there is, one, there is no God but one. <clears throat> For there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords. Yet for us there is one God. For Israel, it works this way. Yahweh does not work by appointing lesser divine beings to carry out his will. He does not appoint lesser divine beings to do what he wants and those divine beings are not worthy of any sort of veneration or worship. In the ancient Near East, the gods functioned the same way human society functions, which is there are some more powerful gods and there are some weaker gods, but they're all gods. There are some gods that do the bidding of the higher up gods, so uh, to, to use the, the rich ruler when he comes to Jesus. I'm a God over other gods. I say to this God, go there, and he does it. I say to this God, go there, and he does it. I know what it is to have authority. That's how it worked conceptually for the ancient Near East. That's the way it worked in Israel's mind, too. Israel was a product of that culture. They understood there to be many gods, some higher up and some lower down. And so a higher God would appoint lesser divine beings. And what Moses is telling Israel here in Deuteronomy 6 is it doesn't work that way. If you want rain, don't pray to Baal as a servant of Yahweh. You pray to Yahweh. There's only one for you. Also, don't pray to Baal as a co-equal of some sort with Yahweh. Pray to Yahweh. He's the one who gives you rain. So he's limiting who Israel can worship down to one. There is one God for you, O Israel. Now, I, um, I'm going to make a, a defense really quick for what I've done on the handouts. 
I'm dipping more into the original languages this week than I have in any other week of going through Deuteronomy, but I, I do it hopefully to draw one point out. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, I have in Greek on your handout, and right below it I have 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 on your handout. The reason I have done that is because it draws out who we are to worship. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, I will read you the Greek, so you follow along. The Lord, the God, are. So Lord is in red, God, Hathaos, Hamon is our. So this is the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord, our God, the Lord, one he is. One is in blue. One he is. That's the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God, the Lord, one he is. And here's the Greek translation of 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. One God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. What's happening here is we don't add one in one in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It's not there's one God and Father... And there's another God, a Lord, who we call Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 is he is using the word Lord in 1 Corinthians 8 the same way it was used in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord from Deuteronomy 6, 4, Yahweh, is Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Who do we worship? One, Jesus Christ. One God, one Lord, not two, one. One God, one Lord, one and the same. Jesus Christ is Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's who we worship. So Jesus says, you do not honor me, you don't honor the Father. We're one. He is in me, I am in him. There's one. Our shift has not fo- our our focus has not shifted from Yahweh of the Old Testament to Jesus of the New. Our shift is we know there's somehow three in one. I don't get it. I know it's true, but that's who we worship. We worship the one who is three, and the three who is one. We worship Jesus, and by worshiping Jesus, we actually worship. Yahweh of the Old Testament, because he is the God of the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. So throughout the New Testament, every time it says the Lord Jesus Christ, we could put in Yahweh, Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable thought. I don't think we need to do that by any means, but um, that is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. One and the same, no distinction between them. We worship Jesus. Thoughts or questions over verse 4, Deuteronomy 6.
if I understand your question correctly, praying to Jesus is praying. Yeah. So is that not putting God first then? Yes. Uh, so, so the question is, when people wanted to proselytize over to Judaism, right. um, were they putting their faith in this God? Right. Yes. Um, yes, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so is Jesus. When they would ask things that they didn't, they weren't religious, they would ask to them to pray. So if they prayed in this God's name but didn't only adhere to him. That's fuzzy. Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. So if, if someone prays to Jesus without really believing in Jesus, are they praying to Jesus? Um, Paul might give the answer, yes, but not according to knowledge. Um, right? Just like he does of the Jews and Romans, right? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. No. So, next question. In Genesis, when it speaks of us or they in reference to God, God's speaking to himself, do they not understand Trinity? No. And to give them a little bit of slack on that, the church didn't really get the Trinity formulated well for almost the first 500 years of church history uh, before we were actually able to put solid words consistently around it and start to get some semblance of what it meant. However... There are lots of places in the Old Testament like that that certainly give the allusion to that. I would also argue that in the Old Testament, they should have understood some sort of plurality in God's being. Um, David is well known for that as well. Um, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. He's speaking to God, but he's also calling someone else God who he's not speaking to. And so there's, there's clearly something more going on there. What is going on there is not really revealed until the Spirit gives enlightenment after Jesus shows up. And the, the three are there. Great. Anything else? Okay. We'll move on. Verses 5 and following. And you shall love... Yahweh your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here love is commanded as an emotion we are to have toward God. The idea is similar to what has been mentioned before in Deuteronomy, but this is the first time love has been explicitly commanded. It's been alluded to as in the Lord keeps steadfast covenant with those who love him and who keep his commandments. Um, But here it is the first time in Scripture commanded that we love God. Daniel Block uh, makes a a great observation. I'm assuming he's true. I'm taking his word for it. So as, as I say this, you're taking his word. He says that there is only one place in Scripture ever where it is said that someone actually loved God. And it was in reference to Solomon. And there's a lot of question about whether that word is used about Solomon in reference to God as an irony, because Solomon is the uh, king who built the temple for the Lord, obviously, but who also apostatized at the end of his life. And so there's a a great article that I have not read. I just saw the title to it. Has the author come to praise or bury Solomon? Um, Because he's the only one about whom 
It said he loved God. Nowhere does it say that anyone in Scripture ever loved God using the word that is commanded here. You shall love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Um, No one has ever attained that. And so Scripture never really imputes it to anyone in a uh, laudatory way. There are two words in Scripture that often mean love. I've given them to you on your handout as well. The first one is chesed. It is the word for covenant fidelity or loyalty or faithfulness. It is often used in combination with emet, which is the word for uh, truthful. It's often an adjective, truthful or reliable. Uh, Faithful also works in that. Those two words are paired together in a place like Exodus 34, verse 6. We only have time for this reference this morning. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is the Lord showing Moses his glory. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and emet. Those are the two words that are used there. If we went a little bit further in verse 7, Keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, so on and so forth. The word that is used here in Deuteronomy 6 is echav, a word uh, that is often used to describe an emotional love that is expressed through actions on behalf of the one who is loved. This is the word used to describe Abraham's affection for Isaac. So when God shows up to Abraham and says, take Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love, that's this word right here, whom you love, and offer him to me. It is also used to express Jacob's affections for Rachel. Uh, The seven years he served uh, served Laban seemed like nothing because of the great love with which he loved Rachel. That's the same word here again. And so it's happening in Deuteronomy 6.4, I'm sorry, 6.5, there it is, is it is describing not only actions we are to have with the Lord, but those actions that are supposed to rise out of a particular emotion we are to feel toward the Lord. So God does command our emotions and the activity that follow in their wake. We feel like we cannot control our emotions sometimes, right? The Lord gives us no excuse. The emotions are commanded every bit as much as the actions our hands do and the words our tongues speak. This right here is the great emotion, uh, along with fear, which you can call emotional as well in some contexts anyway, now that is what is to be directed towards the Lord. And this right here is Moses' distillation of the entire law. You want to know what everything is about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as I've said before, Deuteronomy 6 through 11, chapters 6 through 11, 
is an extended meditation on the first commandment, and he kicks it off right here. You want to know what it looks like to worship the Lord your God and to have no other gods before him? This is what it looks like. Love him with everything you've got and leave nothing in reserve. Verse 5, going on, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your exceedingness. The heart was the seat of the intellect and the will and the emotions. So uh, everything internally. Love the Lord with everything you've got inside. Love him with your soul, which would be maybe uh, the life force or energy or vigor. Um, Everything you can muster is to go toward the Lord. And the last word is not a noun. It's not the noun for strength. It is an adverb, meaning abundance. Um, exceeding is the way it's often translated, or very much. Love the Lord with all your very muchness is what the, the last word here is. In this context, it would include strength, but would it, it would include all forms of strength. All you can muster physically, all you can muster economically, all you can muster uh, socially, all of those things are to be used and directed toward loving God. In combination with 6.4, this is a command that we fuse our covenant relationship with the Lord and the Lord alone with the bond of affection that gives rise to full obedience in life. Everything you've got. Leave nothing behind. This is the essence of covenant relationship with the Lord. That's what it means to be in covenant with him. Practically, everything we have and everything we do should be usefully directed toward bringing glory to God. Ephesians 4.29 gives us the same thing. Ephesians 4.29. Here's an example. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Woofta. <laughs> Every word you speak ought to give grace to those who hear. That no corrupting talk is in contrast to the other thing, which means every word that is not graceful for building others up is corrupting talk. Every word we speak is to be aimed with all our energy and everything we have towards building others up in the faith. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is overwhelming. Um, Block, I'll, I'll give you him once more here. He says that Deuteronomy 6, 5, and I think he's right, is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'll give one one example here uh, of of how I think this, this works out. The Lord demands that we sacrifice some things 
to him. But the Lord also demands that we view everything we have sacrificially. And there's a difference. For example, for the ancient Israelite, there was only a couple things that the Lord demanded that a man sacrifice to the Lord. But he demanded that the man view everything he have sacrificially. In our context, we can put it this way. Time devoted to scripture study and prayer is time sacrificed to God. But by refusing to view any of my time for my, what we might call, my relaxation, all of that time is to be viewed sacrificially. So what is said of speech is also true of time. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for the occasion and fitting, so with your time. Use no time idly or corruptly, but use all your time in a way to build others up. That requires a lot of wisdom to know how to use our time in a way that is worthy of what Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 calls us to. Which is why, again, teaching is so important. If it is practical, it will help us and aid us to do that very thing. Last thing we'll say here, we're, we're just about done. Verse 6, all of Israel's life, Deuteronomy 6, 6, all of Israel's life is to be dominated by Torah, not merely in outlook, but in inward desire. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. I have no doubt that when the psalmist wrote Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible, that great ode to the Lord's commandments, he was thinking of this. Uh, These words shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them, verse 7, to your children. So not only are we to endlessly contemplate and be transformed by our contemplation, by God's word, not only are they to always be upon our hearts, we are to inculcate them to our children. The word here is to indoctrinate or to inculcate uh, them to our children. And we're to do it by spontaneous discussion. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We are to discipline ourselves in catechizing our children. Verse 8, last half of verse 7 there. Uh, When you sit down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They are to be part of our ornamentation. All of these things. So we're supposed to just absolutely surround ourselves by them. So if you go to the last, uh, the second page of that handout, I have concentric circles there. There is the heart, there is the soul, and the strength. The three areas, uh, everything we have, that is to be directed toward God. But the words are supposed to be on our heart in verse 6. They are to be within our family, verses 7 and 8, and to be all over in our community, verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. It's one thing to say we love God. We, We sing about how we love the Lord. But this is what we claim we do when we sing that. Is that true of us? 
Do we really love the Lord the way he calls us and commands us to love him? Um, I've, I've heard people say we would be a lot more cautious about claiming how deeply we love the Lord if we knew what we claimed to be singing and saying. This is a very, very high calling, and it's where Moses starts, and it's from which everything else falls. And Jesus himself will say, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the heart the hands will do the actions. Out of the heart the mind will meditate and ruminate. And this is where our heart is supposed to be, and everything else we have is supposed to go in its wake. Um, That is very heavy this morning, uh, perhaps um, convicting, but it is also tremendously encouraging. Uh, This sort of thing is what we are to pursue, and when we do The satisfaction for it is endless as well, and we'll get there too. Thoughts or questions before we close shop? All right, thanks for joining. God willing, I'll see you next week.